Good morning. If you have your Bibles, would you open up with me now to the New Testament, to the book of Romans this morning. The book of Romans, as we start a brand new study through this powerful letter. Beginning in verse 1, Romans chapter 1, verse 1, with a message entitled, The Gospel of Grace. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead." Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Shall we pray together? And Father, we do thank you for the gospel of grace, and we would ask this morning, God, that you would open our understanding to this life-changing message. Lord, allow your spirit to work here today. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. The epistle to the Romans has been referred to as the cathedral of the Christian faith or the constitution for believers. Its themes and its theology are fundamental and foundational. It may very well be one of the most incredible books in the entire New Testament. As you look back over the annals of church history, you'll discover that an understanding of the letter to the Romans has both inspired and brought about great revivals. Men like Augustine, Luther, Wesley, who made significant contributions to the Christian heritage, all came to the assurance of saving faith through the impact of the book of Romans. John Chrysostom, who was the fifth century's greatest preacher, said that he had Romans read aloud to him once a week. Even in our own heritage of churches within Calvary Chapel, I can recall Pastor Chuck talking about being involved in a denomination that was somewhat legalistic. He grew up thinking that his righteousness was predicated upon what he did or did not do. But it was through the reading, through the studying, and the teaching of the book of Romans that he discovered the grace of God. And it revolutionized his ministry. Someone said that Romans is a book that will delight the greatest thinker and captivate the mind of the consummate genius. Yet it will bring tears to the humblest of souls and refreshment to the simplest mind. It will knock you down and then lift you up. It could strip you bare and then clothe you with eternal elegance. It's my prayer that the revivals that were sparked in times past through a thorough study of the book of Romans, would spark a revival in our own hearts and our church as well. 
When you compare the book of Romans to the other letters that were written by Paul in the New Testament, and he wrote the majority of the New Testament, you'll find a significant difference. For one thing, Paul didn't start the church in Rome. In fact, when he wrote this letter, he had never been there. In his other epistles, you find Paul dealing with problems in the church in the form of error or some danger that he would warn the church of false teaching that was threatening to undermine the message of the gospel he had presented. But in writing to the Romans, you read more of a systematic exposition of Paul's position, independent of any immediate circumstances that he was in. He presents some amazing doctrine and answers many theological questions. The letter to the Romans was written by Paul while he was in the city of Corinth during his third missionary journey, somewhere around the middle of the first century, which was close to 30 years after the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The letter opens with an introduction and a description of its author. In verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Paul the Apostle used to be called by a different name. He was formerly known as Saul of Tarsus. When you read through the book of Acts, as well as other books written by Paul, you learn about his testimony and how it was that he came to faith in Christ. The Bible reveals information about his upbringing. We know from the scriptures that Paul's mother was Jewish and that she was from the tribe of Benjamin. Perhaps that is why he was initially named Saul, because the first king of Israel was named Saul, and he was from the tribe of Benjamin. Paul's father, on the other hand, was a Roman citizen, which granted Paul the desired privilege of being a free Roman citizen within the empire. The Bible also reveals the city where he grew up. It was the city of Tarsus which was a place of learning and education, for within it was a well-known university. We also know about his chosen profession. Paul went into the religious business. He became a Pharisee, and the Pharisees were an influential religious sect within Judaism during the time of Christ as well as the early church. And the Pharisees were known for their emphasis on personal piety, the word Pharisee comes from the Hebrew word meaning separated. Their acceptance of oral tradition as well as the law of God, they taught all the Jews that they should respond and follow 600 plus commandments that were revealed in the Torah as well as all of the ceremonial purification laws. Paul's abilities as well as his credentials really exceeded his contemporaries, and partly it was due to the fact that he had the unique privilege of being taught by one of the most prominent teachers of his day, a man by the name of Gamaliel, who was the grandson of Rabbi Hillel, who really was the authority on the law of God for all of the Jews. All of his religious training and indoctrination made him zealous for the law, and he became an enemy of the early church. As Christianity continued to grow, Paul took it upon himself to persecute and imprison all who were followers of Jesus Christ. 
In the book of Acts chapter 7, a young man by the name of Stephen, who became the first martyr of the early church, while he was being stoned to death, it was Saul who held the coats of the people who were throwing the rocks. Saul's hatred for Christianity only intensified. And that is why in Acts chapter 9, in verse 1, it says this, Saul was still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, and he went to the high priest, and he asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, that is what Christianity was called at one time, the way, because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Paul was breathing in, breathing out. It means that every breath that he took was persecution and increased hatred and determination to stamp out Christianity. But something happened to him on the road to Damascus. Saul of Tarsus met Jesus of Nazareth. And in Acts chapter 9, it says this, he journeyed and he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Saul was converted on the road to Damascus. And following his conversion, he immediately began to go into the synagogues and debate with his former colleagues about Jesus Christ. But there was such tremendous opposition to his message that he was placed into a basket and let down over the wall of the city because all of the death threats upon his life. From there, the book of Galatians chapter 1 fills in the details that Paul spent the next three years of his life in the desert of Arabia where he received a greater revelation of Jesus and the gospel of grace. He then returned to Damascus and eventually was introduced to the apostles in the city of Jerusalem. But there came a turning point in Paul's life and ministry. As the message of the gospel began to spread, not just to the Jewish communities, but now into Gentile regions, there was a city, a Gentile city known as Antioch. It was the place where they were actually first called Christians. And one of Paul's friends, whose name was Barnabas, invited Paul to come to Antioch and assist him in discipling these new converts there within the city. There he went, and as the ministry continued to expand, the Holy Spirit made it clear that Paul and Barnabas were to be sent out to plant churches in other places, which led him to three separate missionary journeys that spanned over 15 years, traveling more than 20,000 miles, proclaiming the gospel and establishing churches. When you think about it, there is a complete sermon in one name, Paul. It's amazing to consider that the most unlikely candidate for a life of ministry, had undergone such a radical transformation that his very name was changed. And throughout the Bible, you will see several occasions when individuals' names were changed by God. Abram became Abraham. Jacob 
became Israel. You think of Simon, who became Peter, and Saul, who became Paul. All of this was an indication of who they were and who God made them into. And in one sense, although our names haven't been changed necessarily, perfectly, if you're a Christian, your life has been changed. You're not the same person you used to be. You used to at one time be a blasphemer, an insolent person, but now you've been saved, born again, and transformed by the power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. Within his introduction, Paul now gives a brief description of his ministry, and he begins by referring to himself with a very unique title, bondservant. Other translations say bondslave in verse 1. Bondservant of Jesus Christ. The word bondservant describes one who is bound to another. Paul used to serve himself. He used to be bound to a life of self-righteousness and sin. But now he was liberated and was a servant of Jesus Christ. And the word bondservant meant one who served his master to the point of disregarding his own interests. It was one whose life was swallowed up in the will of his master. This idea of bondservant or bondslave is found back in the book of Exodus chapter 21. And it's there in Exodus that if a person ended up becoming a servant of a master, maybe they fell on hard times financially, they would serve their master for six years. In the seventh year, they would be given the opportunity to go out as a free person. However, if in the seventh year, that servant decided, I don't want to leave my master. Everything that I have, everything that's been given to me has come as a direct result of my relationship to my master. I don't want to leave. I love my master. He would decide of his own volition to be a servant for life. And if that were the case, the master would then take him and he would pierce his ear through with an awl signifying that he now was forever a bondservant by his own choice. Paul picks up that title and applies it to himself and his relationship to Jesus Christ. He said, I, nobody forced me to be a servant of the Lord Jesus. I have chosen this for myself. I have seen the blessing and the benefit of knowing Christ, and I have decided that I'm going to serve him with everything that I am, and I serve him because of love. That's what compels me. I'm his bondservant. I wonder today... Christian, are you a bondservant of Jesus Christ? Is your life swallowed up in the purpose and the plan of God, his will for your life instead of your own? Are you a bondslave? Do you serve him because of love? Is that the motivation? That was Paul's heart. Jesus was not just his savior. He was his Lord. And there is a difference. He was his savior and he was his Lord. And he was committed to Christ and referred to himself as a bondservant. But not only was he a bondservant, but he adds in addition to that, that he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. It says he was called to be an apostle, meaning he was invited to take the position of an apostle. The word apostle means one who is sent out to represent another. The Bible says that God gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be pastors, teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, some to be evangelists. God is the one that calls people uniquely into these roles within the church. And the fact that he was an apostle, this invitation was given to him, probably the closest thing we have to an apostle today would be perhaps a missionary. 
One who is sent out with an apostolic kind of calling goes out representing the Lord into foreign countries. Here was Paul, called to be an apostle by Jesus Christ. It was not something that he decided for himself. This was something that God called him into. In fact, in writing to Timothy, he said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. This was a calling from God. And listen, folks, God has a calling upon your life today. He has a purpose and a plan for you. And whatever God has called you to be and whatever he's called you to do, that's his highest calling for your life. If you are called to be at home raising your children, listen, that's a high calling from God. Do it to the glory of the Lord Jesus. If you're called to sell insurance, do it for the glory of God. If you're called to work on cars, do it for the glory of God. This calling that God has placed upon us, it is powerful, it is unique. And what God is concerned about within this calling, this invitation that we have received is that we would be faithful in whatever he's called us to do. Being that he was a servant and called to be an apostle, his main purpose in life, his primary function as a servant of Jesus Christ and an apostle was this, to preach the gospel. We've considered the messenger. This is who he is. This is the author of the letter. But now the author begins to describe for us the message that he presented. You'll notice it says, separated to the gospel of God. The word gospel simply means good news. And to appreciate the good news, you have to be aware of and understand the bad news. Bad news first. Here it is. The bad news is that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That we are born with a sin nature. No one has to teach you how to sin. You just do it naturally. No parent says to their child, lie to me, please. And when I ask you a question, they just do it. You don't have to teach them how to do the wrong thing. You do have to teach them how to do the right thing. Why is that? Because they are born with a sin nature, and we have all violated and broken God's law. Oh, I just live by the Ten Commandments, you say. That's what I do. Have you ever lied? Nope. Well, you just broke one of the commandments. You are guilty. We have all sinned. And the Bible tells us if we die in our sin without salvation that comes through Christ alone, then we will be separated from God in a real, literal place that is called hell. You heard it, hell. It's a real place. In fact, Jesus preached more on hell than he did on heaven because he didn't want anybody to go there. The Bible makes it clear that hell is a place of eternal darkness, of eternal fire, of eternal cognizance, of your rejection of the gospel message. That is the bad news. Here comes the good news. The good news is that God so loved the world that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect, sinless life and then to die the death that we should have died upon the cross. All of our sins, all of the things that we're ashamed of were placed upon Christ and he died there for us and then he was buried in the tomb and on the third day he rose again from the dead. And now he offers salvation and eternal life in heaven to whoever will receive him. That's 
the good news. Listen, friend, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not be a good person, do the best you can, and you'll make it to a better place upstairs. That is not the gospel message. The gospel message is not come to my church and check it out. It's so rad. That is not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is not be spiritual and perform random acts of kindness and you might make it to heaven. That is not the gospel. We could never do enough good. Our sin separates us from a holy God and it is only if we repent and turn from our sin and turn to Christ for salvation that we'll be saved. There is no other way apart from Jesus. Jesus is not one of many many religions that you can choose from. He is the exclusive way, truth, and life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. The world has a vast array of religions, and religions are man's attempt to search for God, but the gospel is God's search for man. There are many religions. There is one gospel that saves. Paul goes on to verify the power and the truthfulness of this gospel message by pointing, first of all, that it was revealed in the Old Testament. If you look here at verse 2, it says, which he promised before, that is the gospel, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, which is a reference to the Old Testament. The message of the gospel was not something Paul made up while he was out in the desert for three years and came back. I got some great news. I figured this out while I was out there. That's not the gospel. The gospel is revealed in the Old Testament. When you read through the Old Testament, and I would encourage you to read through the Old Testament because it's the word of God. And what you're going to find is there is an anticipation of someone who is coming. The prophets are pointing to someone who is coming. The sacrifices are pointing to one sacrifice that will ultimately bring about redemption and the forgiveness of sins. When you close the Old Testament, the one that they are waiting for and pointing to has not yet arrived. However, when you open the New Testament, the very first thing you read is the angels declaring to the shepherds in the fields, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. By the way, one of the things that sets Jesus apart from any other religious figure who has come in their own name and sets the Bible apart from any other spiritual book is biblical prophecy found in the Old Testament scriptures. Folks, here you have in your hand 66 books written by over 40 authors on three different continents over a 1,500-year span of time with three different languages, and there is a cohesiveness and a harmonization from Genesis to Revelation. Over and over again, the authors of the Bible, independent of one another, foretold future events, often hundreds and even thousands of years before they ever took place. The Bible is literally filled with hundreds of specific, detailed prophecies about persons, places, and events, many of which have already been fulfilled. Consider a few of the prophecies as they 
concerned Jesus Christ. The Old Testament prophesied that the Savior, Jesus Christ, would be born of the seed of Abraham. He was. He would come from the tribe of Judah. He did. He would be of the lineage of David. He was. He would be born in the city of Bethlehem. He was. That he would be here while the temple was still standing. It was. He would be born of a virgin. That he would open the eyes of the blind. That he would unstop the ears of the deaf. At death, That he would cause the lame to walk. He'd be rejected by his own people. The Bible foretold that at the precise time when he would die, according to Daniel. He, and even told us the way in which he would die. By crucifixion, listen, before it was ever invented. It was foretold in the Old Testament. It also prophesied concerning that he would rise again from the dead. Guys, these are just some of the examples of the prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus' life. The Old Testament was completed 400 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, and it contains more than 300 references to the Messiah that were fulfilled during his lifetime. Calculations have been made according to the science of probability of a person fulfilling, listen, just eight prophecies. Not 300 with Jesus fulfilled, but just eight. What's the science of probability? Do the math, would you please? I didn't do it, someone else did, but I read it, and here's what they said. The equivalent of one man fulfilling eight prophecies in his lifetime, one in 10 to the 17th power. Another way to say it is one in 100 quadrillion. The gospel message foretold, revealed in the Old Testament. Jesus makes this fact clear during his earthly ministry. When he was confronted by the religious leaders, John chapter 5, verse 39 says this. Jesus responded and he said, you search the scriptures for in them you think that you have eternal life and these, that is the scriptures, are they which testify of me but you're not willing to come to me that you might have life. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? He's saying to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders who spent their entire life studying the Old Testament scriptures, all the scriptures that you study, guess who they talk about? Me. That would have been a shock to them. Furthermore, he said in John chapter 5, verse 46, if you believed Moses, and they did, then you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, then how will you believe my words? Following his death and then his resurrection, Jesus appeared several times. On one occasion, to two very discouraged disciples who were making their way from Jerusalem down the Emmaus Road. Luke 24 tells us of that encounter. And listen to what it says. Jesus appeared to them and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory? Listen to this. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. Do you understand? Jesus went back to the Old Testament and he revealed to these troubled disciples all of the ways in which he was fulfilling biblical prophecy from his death to his resurrection and everything else to come. What a Bible study that must have been. 
to hear him expounding in the scriptures. That's why when you read through the Bible, you should look for Jesus because in the volume of the book, it's written concerning him. This isn't history. This is his story, folks. It's about Christ. No wonder the apostle Peter in his second epistle was recounting his experience that he had when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration and he got a glimpse of the transcendent glory of God in the person of Christ And he commented on the importance of the power of prophecy of the Old Testament in pointing to Jesus when he said this in 2 Peter 1.19, we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you would do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The gospel message found in the book of Romans, found in the New Testament, is revealed in biblical prophecy in the Old Testament. But it is also rooted, listen, in the person of Jesus Christ, both in his humanity and in his deity. Jesus is the central theme of the gospel. If you don't have Jesus, you have no gospel. He is the Savior. That is why in verse 3 it says, Concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh. Please make note of something here. Jesus is his name. Christ is his title. It's the Hebrew equivalent of, of Messiah in the Old Testament. It's not first and last name, Mr. Jesus Christ. How do you do? That's not, no, that's, that's a misunderstanding. His name is Jesus. His title is Christ. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah, in other words, and he's the Lord. The gospel message revealed in the Old Testament, rooted in the person of Christ, in his humanity, first of all, and his deity, second. First of all, his humanity. It says that he was born, notice this, of the seed of David, according to the flesh. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, King David was seated in his palace, visiting with his friend Nathan the prophet. And he came up with an idea, and this was the idea. He said, Nathan, I'm going to do something. I'm going to build God a house. It just doesn't seem right that I should be sitting in this palace and God's living in a tent. It seems like it should be reversed. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to build God a house. And Nathan said, David, do all that is in your heart. The Lord's with you. That's a great idea. Nathan leaves David's home. And as he is departing, the Lord speaks to him and says, Nathan, you spoke too soon. You need to go back to David and tell him he can't build me a house because he's, his hands are bloody. He's a man of war. His son, who will come after him, will eventually build a temple. But here's what I want you to tell David. I've got something exciting to reveal to him, and here's what it was in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Look what the Lord said to David. The Lord tells you that he will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers. I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name I will establish, here it is, the throne of his kingdom forever. What does that mean? It means that from David's line would come the Messiah who would reign forever and ever, Jesus Christ. You recall that Isaiah referenced David when he prophesied concerning the Messiah. 
He said, a child is born to us, a son will be given. The government will rest upon his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And he will reign, where? On David's throne, Isaiah tells us. Jeremiah prophesied that God would raise up for David a righteous branch whose name is the Lord, our righteousness. That only refers to one person, and that's Jesus Christ. And so you open the New Testament, and what you find in Matthew as well as in Luke's gospel are two genealogies. One genealogy in Matthew points to his earthly father, which was Joseph, through David's son Solomon. But then Luke follows the line of Mary, Jesus' blood relative, through David's other son, whose name was Nathan. Which means this, either through Mary or Joseph's line, Jesus is a descendant of David, and he is eligible to take his rightful place on the throne and reign forever. He is the son of David. He is fully God and yet fully man. Jesus in his humanity was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. He knows what it feels like to be weak, to be tired, to be alone, to suffer pain, even to die. There is not one thing that you or I will go through in this life that Jesus hasn't already experienced and can relate to us. Folks, the gospel of God has everything to do with the humanity of Jesus. The word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John chapter one tells us his humanity on display. Oh, but also his deity. It says he is declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. Fully man, yes, and yet fully God. That's what the Bible calls the incarnation of Christ. Jesus is not God's son in the sense of a human father and a son. God didn't get married, in other words, and then have a child, God did not mate with Mary, the mother of Jesus, to produce a son. Jesus is God's son in the sense that he is God manifest in human form. He is the express image, the brightness of the Father, the Bible tells us. He is God's son in that he was conceived in Mary by the Holy Spirit. The Son of God is God. Jesus is God made manifest. Don't misunderstand that. He is fully man and yet fully God. And that's the only way that he could be our savior. The message of the gospel is Jesus is God, became a man, clothed himself in human flesh, set aside his divine privileges temporarily in order to save us from our sins when he died on the cross. But the gospel message doesn't stop there because he not only died on a cross, listen, he rose again from the dead. As it says here, by the resurrection, verse 4, from the dead. If you don't have a resurrection, you don't have a gospel. There is no gospel message without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It all hangs on the resurrection. If there's no resurrection, you should have stayed in bed this morning. 
pointless for you to get up and come here. No reason for any church to exist. No reason to study this book. No reason to preach a message of a dead redeemer. But the fact is, it is an indisputable fact that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. He is alive. That sets them apart from every other person who's ever come in their own name. They're dead. They're buried. They've decayed. Gone. Jesus, alive, risen, seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf right now as we speak and coming again. Amen. He's alive. If Jesus had simply lived a lovely life and died a heroic death, And if that had been the end of him, then he might have been numbered with the great and the heroic, but he would have simply been one among many. His uniqueness is forever guaranteed by the fact of the resurrection. Again, the others are dead and gone and have left a memory where Jesus lives on and gives us a presence still mighty with power. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen, it proves everything that he said is true. Everything he said about heaven, everything he said about hell, everything he said about life, everything he said about salvation, the resurrection proves it all. He is who he says he is. The Bible tells us here in verse five what the gospel has provided. What has this gospel of God provided for us who have believed? What does it provide? Well, for one thing, it says through him we have received Grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom also you are called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. One of the things that this gospel has provided is grace. Do you you know what grace is? Grace is God's unmerited favor. We can't do anything to deserve it. We can't earn it. It is something that can only be received. It is getting what we do. We don't deserve God's grace. We don't deserve God's mercy. God saves us through an act of his grace. We're saved by grace alone, guys, through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You can't earn salvation. It is a gift of his grace. That's what makes it so amazing. Because the fact is we have been trained to try to earn something, work for it. And if you work for it, then you get it. It's not that way with salvation. That's why some people have a very difficult time because when it comes to salvation, you have to come to the realization that you're a sinner and you need God's grace just like everybody else. Because some people, what stands in the way of their salvation is their own pride. I'm not, I'm not a loser. I'm not a drug dealer. I'm not a... Hey, you know, whatever, whatever is your thing, well, I'm not that and I'm not that, so what do you mean I need to repent of sin? I'm, I'm pretty good. I know a lot of people that are really bad and I'm not like that. But you're still a sinner like everybody else and you still need salvation. And that is why Jesus came and he offers grace. Someone defined grace as God's riches at Christ's expense. That is what has been given to us as a result of the gospel. It is a gospel of grace. And I'm so thankful that it is because I'm just not worthy of it. 
But not only has he given us grace, but also you'll notice, he says, an apostleship for obedience to the faith. I want you to notice something here. Obedience and faith go together. They go together. A person that says, well, I have faith in Christ, I believe, but I don't live like I believe, then I question whether or not you have saving faith. Because faith and obedience go together. I come to God by grace through faith, but then obedience follows. Jesus said, those that love me, they keep my commandments. Let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Jesus didn't save me so that I could continue to live a life of disobedience that I've always lived. He, lived, he saved me so that I could live a life of obedience to him. Faith and obedience go together. The Bible says to obey is better than sacrifice. You can own a huge Bible. You can go to a church on a regular basis. But if you walk out these doors and you live like you don't know Christ, then what are you doing but just going through the motions? Have you been self-deceived? Are you under a false impression that because you filled a seat today, then that means your seat is there in heaven? Listen, guys, obedience follows faith. And God, this is the great news, God gives us the power of the Holy Spirit to actually walk in obedience. I can't do it on my own. I realize this. But yet he gives me the power of the Holy Spirit to live a life that is pleasing to him. He calls me to it, but then he enables me to do it. Are you walking in obedience to the Lord today? Are, are you backslidden today? And by backslidden, I mean you're going in the opposite direction. You're here today in church, but you got plans afterwards that look nothing like Jesus whatsoever. You got stuff you've already been involved with the week and you're still coming down off of whatever it was you were into and on and you're living this morning in this place with this guilt and condemnation because you know you're not walking in obedience to Christ. That's got to change and that starts with repentance. A turn from those things. Turn and live, the Bible says, repeatedly. Come to Christ and live. And here he says, listen, faith and obedience a result of the gospel. And then he adds... Love to all who are in Rome. Beloved. Folks, listen, you and me, we're loved by God. He loves you so much. And he not, he not only says it repeatedly from cover to cover, but he proves it, demonstrated it with the undeniable proof of his death. God so loved the world that he gave. He loves you this morning more than you know. And he doesn't love you because of what you can do for him. He doesn't love you because of all, you know, he loves you because he loves you. <laughs> That's who he is. God is love. And not only does he love us, but check this out. This will, this will really blow you away. Called to be saints. Now maybe you grew up with an understanding of what a saint was. A saint, that's like you, you vote on it, they become a saint. There's certain things you gotta do to become a saint. Certain saints, the saint of you know, missing keys, the saint you know, of finding lost things, the saint of this, saint, and there's a lot of them out there. Saint Patrick and others who have, you know, Saint Bernard, these are all different saints that have come as a result of something they've done. They've earned the right to sainthood and the church recognized now that is a saint and we voted on it. Listen, you, you may have been one of those people that say, well, I'm no saint, you know, I'm a Christian, but I'm no saint. You ever hear people say that? I'm not a saint, you know, I'm not a, you know, I'm a, I'm not a saint. You know, actually, if you're a Christian, you are. You're either a saint or you ain't. That's what the Bible tells us here. 
the word saint means separated, consecrated to God. In scripture, 67 times the word saints is used, and it's always used in the plural. There's one time when it's, it's used singularly, saint, but even in that one instance, plurality is in mind in the sentence structure. Saints means you and me. Doesn't it have a nice ring to it? Saint John. I like it. I mean, it works for me. Saint Tony. Saint Gary. These are great names. I mean, this is awesome. That's who we are. We've been called to this. This is our life. Finally, he says in verse 7 Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Throughout his epistles, his other letters in the New Testament, Paul will use this common greeting right here. Grace and peace. Always in this order. Grace, a common Greek greeting. Charis. Shalom, peace. Common Hebrew greeting. In the pastoral epistles, he adds mercy. Pastors need it a lot. Mercy. But he grace here. Grace and peace, he says. Why in this order? I believe that until you experience the grace of God, you'll never be at peace with God. That's where it starts. Once you experience the grace of God, you're brought into peace with God and you experience the peace of God. Maybe you've been at war with God, wrestling against him, fighting against him, Do you you want to be at peace with God today? I'm going to give you an opportunity here in a second to raise up the white flag and say, God, I surrender to you. God, I give my life to you. Lord, I want to experience this grace, this gospel of grace, this gospel of God that can save my soul, give me the hope of heaven, and then you'll know the peace of God. People are looking and searching. You look around the world today, people are looking for peace through all different means. Some get in an uncomfortable position for a long period of time and say things and chant things, hoping to find inner peace. But then their children wake up and it's gone. (laughs) Other people search for it in different ways, different avenues to find peace. If you want real peace, do you know where it comes from? The Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. And he offers you that today. Jesus said, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. If you want to be at peace with God today and experience the peace of God, here's your opportunity to respond to the gospel of grace. You may never have another opportunity like you have right here this morning. And whether you're in the fellowship hall or you're out in the courtyard, I want you to listen up as well, or you're in the family room. Either way, this is for you. Would you pray with me? Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer as we conclude today. Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, we pray right now that your Holy Spirit would search every heart here today. Lord, that the Spirit of God would move in such a powerful way that you would bring conviction Lord, determination to turn from sin and live. God, for those that are backslidden today, for those that are just going through the motions, for those that have, Lord, just been living a double life, Lord, today be the day of salvation, Lord. Lord, please, Lord, we're pleading with you today. Lord, for men to be reconciled to God. 
through this gospel of grace and love that has been extended and poured out at the cross through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as eyes are closed and heads are bowed today, if you're here in this place and you do not know Jesus Christ, if, and I'm not talking about knowing about him, I'm not talking about attending a church, I'm talking about if you're not saved, I want you to lift your hand up high, I wanna pray for you today. Eyes are closed, heads are bowed right now, just raise your hand up high, I wanna pray for you this morning. I see you over here, God bless you. Anybody else? Right now, the spirit of God, God bless you. Anybody else, the spirit of the Lord, praise the Lord. Anybody, the Lord's speaking to you today. If you're out in the fellowship hall, you're in the courtyard, raise your hand up high. Once you raise it up, you can put it down. The Lord sees you today. Anybody else? You say, listen, I want to be saved. I, I want to have the hope of heaven. Guys, listen, one day you're going to die. All of us are. Where are you going to go? Do you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that if today were your last day, you would be in the presence of God for eternity? You can have that assurance, but you've got to respond to his grace. Anybody else today, raise your hand up high. I want to pray for you today. If you're saying yes to Jesus, I want to be saved. I see you in the back. God bless you. It takes courage. I see you right up here in front, over here on the side. God bless you. Once you lift it up, you can put it down. Those of you in the fellowship hall, raise your hand up high and put it down. God sees your hand. If you're in the courtyard out there, raise your hand up high. Put it back down. If you're on the internet, if you're watching with us here today, listen, God's speaking to you too. Respond to the gospel today. He loves you. He died for you. Anybody else? Right now, this is your chance, friend. Jesus is passing by. I see you in the back. God bless you. Awesome. I see your hand back there. Anybody else today? The Spirit of God speaking to you, the gospel of grace gripping your heart. Right now, the Spirit of God speaking to you. Respond. Don't put it off. You may never have another opportunity like this again. Don't let it pass you by. You're not too good for salvation, and you're not too sinful either. Don't be proud. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up, the Bible says. He loves you. Anybody else today? Lift your hand up high. God bless you. I see you right there sitting in the front. God bless you. Anybody else? Lord, speaking to you. I see you right here in the front. Praise the Lord. It's awesome. Praise God. It's great. It's wonderful. Father, for those today who have boldly lifted their hands in faith and said, Jesus, I want to respond to you. Son of David, have mercy on me. Save me. I recognize my need. Lord, I pray that you would give them the courage and the boldness to take the next step and to receive all that you have for them. Today is the day of salvation. Jesus' name. Listen, folks. Everybody Jesus called in Scripture, he called publicly, he called openly. He said to them, come follow me. And they came and followed. It was open. It was public. It wasn't secretive. They stood. They followed. Jesus hung in open shame on the cross for us. The least we can do is stand for him. And for those of you, in a moment, Brian's going to lead us in a song. And if you raised your hand, whether you're outside in the courtyard or you're in the fellowship hall or you're in the family room or you're right here in the sanctuary, I'm going to ask you to take a bold step of faith. You're like, oh, hey, man, I didn't know you were going to do that. I would have kept my hand down. Listen, listen. This is some mind trick. This is the spirit of God speaking to you. 
And if you want to receive Christ and you want to pray to receive him, what I'm asking you to do is, Brian Place, to get up out of your seat and come stand right below this platform. Maybe you thought about raising your hand and you didn't. Then you get up and come right now as we're letting the song. You're out there. Come through those doors right now. Get up and come. We'll wait for you. It's awesome. Get up and come. Others of you over here, you know who you are. Get up and come. Respond to Christ. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Come on. The God of ages step down from glory to bear my sin and bear my shame. The cross has spoken. I am forgiven. You're in the fellowship hall. Get up and come in here. Walk through the door. pray from my seat. You could do that. The Lord would hear you. But you have an opportunity to remember this day right here. When you could say, that was the day that my life changed, man. Everything was transformed. My name, in a sense, was changed. And if that's what you want, then get up and come. Again, if you're outside, come in here. We'll wait for you. If you're in the fellowship hall, walk through the door. Brian's going to sing this one more time. If you're nervous about coming, say, hey, would you go with me? Ask the person next to you, and I'm sure that they will come and stand with you. Listen, everybody here in this room is supportive of you tonight. Heaven is supportive of you right now, this morning, concerned about you. That's good. Others of you, just come through the door. Brian's going to sing it one more time. Let's pray. Let's encourage them, folks. Come on. The one who set me free, hallelujah. Death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Sing hallelujah. couple more of you just sitting down and you feel like you're stuck to your chair like there's velcro on your pants and you like want to stand up but you can't I want to just tell you something here's what happens when you straighten your legs 
It's amazing what happens. And then you take one step. That's it. There's a couple more of you. I'm just going to wait. I just feel like I'm, I'm going to wait. Just sing it one more time, Brian, and then I'm going to pray for these guys. If that's you, get up and come. Don't be stuck. Come on. Hallelujah. Praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah. Death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. Salvation in your name, Jesus Christ, my living hope. Sing Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Sing it one more time for me, Brian, please. Yeah. One more time for the chorus. Hallelujah. This is your chance, Praise the one How long are you going to wait? me free. Hallelujah, death has lost its grip on me, you have broken every chain, there's salvation in your name, Jesus Christ, my living hope, Jesus Christ, my living hope, Jesus Christ. My living hope. Word comes to mind, and uh, just wait on the Lord. Just uh, the word fear is coming to mind. Um, uh, the word abuse is coming to mind. Fear. Uh, I just. You don't know if it's going to work. You don't. You don't know if it's going to. If it's going to work for you. How could God heal all this mess? How could, he, how could he put it back together? How could he do it? And I want you to know something. He created the universe. He spoke it into existence. And he can create in you something new, something fresh, something you've never experienced before. But, but you got to come. You got to respond. The creator of the universe who loves you, who fearfully and wonderfully made you, is offering forgiveness and cleansing and wholeness and purity. But you got to come. You got to come now. And as Brian sings this last time, person or persons, whoever you are, you, you need to respond to God. And uh, we just want to wait for you. And here you go. This is your chance right now as we sing hallelujah. If you want chains broken, if you want fear, the Bible says that perfect love casts out all fear. And that's the kind of love that God has for you. Just come now. Come now. One more time. Baby. Praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah. Death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name. You have broken every chain. There's salvation. You have broken. Let's sing that again. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Jesus Christ, my living hope. 
those of you that came forward today, I'm going to lead you in a word of prayer. This is a prayer of faith, just asking Jesus to be your Lord and to be your Savior. I encourage you as we pray, just pray out loud and mean this from your heart and God will hear you. Just repeat after me, dear Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross for my sins and to rise again from the dead. Today I place my faith in you and receive you as my Savior and my Lord. Fill me now with the power of your Holy Spirit that I can live for you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, you guys. Listen, let's all stand together. Just encourage these guys. Listen, we have something we want to give you guys right up here in front. It'll take five minutes of your time. Pastor Rick is right over here. Pastor Andrew. And as we dismiss today, just would love for you to just come over here just for five minutes. They'll just sit right here in front and just give you something, encourage you. Yeah, come on over here. We'll kind of congregate right over here on this side. Come on over, guys. Just walk this way. Let's encourage them. Yeah. I'm going to dismiss you without a closing song today in a second, just so these guys can dialogue and talk and chat. But here's what, I, here's what I want you to know. Listen, through the book of Romans, you have friends, you have coworkers, you have family members that are unsaved. Bring them to church. And here's what I promise. I will give them opportunity. Whether one person comes forward or no one does. I'm throwing out the net repeatedly because these are the last days and people need Jesus. So... So I encourage you to, to, to do that, to come, and we look forward to what God's going to do. May the Lord bless you and keep you this week.